scripture reading this evening is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. We've been in this series in Revelation, and we're kind of to this section. We talked a bit about this last week, where Jesus has a word for seven very specific churches. And this word is given, uh, if you remember, John is on the island of Patmos. He's been carried into the spirit. He's, he's sort of being drawn up into this moment. And, and Jesus himself is giving him very specific words for very specific contexts. And what's interesting about this one, the church in Smyrna, is that this is the only church that he doesn't have anything against them. So in many of the other ones, we, we it joked last time that it, there's a, a compliment sandwich, right, where he'll compliment the church, and then he'll say, this is what I have against you, and then he'll leave them with some encouragement. In this case, there is only encouragement, and as we'll find out tonight, there's good reason for that. I actually am nervous about preaching this sermon. I don't get nervous very often, um, but this sermon in particular is a hard sermon to preach because it's, it's on a very difficult topic. It's quite heavy, and even though it's an encouraging word, it's a kind of a heavy subject and a heavy encouraging word. We've been talking about how many of these churches were dealing with persecution, but in this church in particular, it was almost taken to a new degree. And it feels a little bit like we're reading someone else's mail that really we can't fully understand what's going on in their situation. I think it's actually hard for us to relate specifically to this church because this church was poor and troubled. Um, the old saying goes that when pastor gets up, they're called, they're called upon to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I think this sermon feels that way a little bit. So I want to invite you to join me as we take a journey to this church in Asia Minor called Smyrna. So again, this church is different than the other churches for a few reasons. The number one reason is that Jesus mentions how poor this church is. They don't have a lot of resources. They're struggling to get by. And not only that, but they've been especially afflicted. It's a church that is suffering. They find themselves in the midst of great difficulty, and then they receive this letter. And as an exercise, we did this last week, but I want you to get your mind around um, this sort of scene where a pastor gets up in front of a congregation and says, I have good news. We have a word from Jesus himself. That would be pretty exciting. And in this case, you can imagine that they were hope, holding on for any kind of hope because what they're dealing with is so difficult. And so the pastor gets up and he begins to read the letter. And there's a sadness, I would imagine, because the letter doesn't offer any immediate relief from their pain. 
I wonder if that church was hoping for something more, that maybe there would be a deadline or that they would say, your pain will cease after this amount of time or we will make things better for you, but we don't get that in this situation. Instead, in all these letters, Jesus gives some words of encouragement and he says, I am with you and I have a relationship with you. And there is this connection of as if Jesus says, I'm going to journey this alongside you. He relates to his people as the one who was dead and now alive. He relates to them as someone who's actually suffered extreme suffering as well. And now he reminds them that he is with them, that he's the alpha and the omega, that he's the true faithful martyr. And that's really what this letter is about. It's, it's not complex. It's really quite simple. The reason and the main idea behind the letter to Smyrna is what it means uh, to be a martyr. He's actually preparing the church for martyrdom. And if you're unfamiliar with that word, martyrdom is this idea of dying for your faith. Your life is taken. It's like a literal dying for your faith. And so he's preparing this church because it's likely this is what is coming. Now this is a hard one, I, I feel like, for us to relate to because of the fact that we live in a culture where we don't have that fear. I don't, I don't anticipate any, anyone having to die for their faith anytime soon. I think we live a relatively comfortable life in the United States of America. I feel like in our time in history even, um, it's not something that, that too many of us have to experience. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't exist now in our world. I mean, our brothers and sisters in India have a, a tremendous uh, persecution that they're experiencing right now. We have friends in Afghanistan who are homeless, who are trying to figure out what, what it means to live under, under a new regime. We've got people in, uh, that my brother has, has interacted with in Tibet who um, are basically cast out onto the outskirts of town because they won't convert to Buddhism. Um, all kinds of places in the world that do experience this kind of persecution. Now, because we live here, that doesn't make it wrong or it doesn't make it bad or evil. In fact, I would just say it's, it's a gift. Like we live in a place where we can worship freely. But I do think it's helpful for us to be reminded from time to time that our brothers and sisters in the faith in other places don't have that freedom. And I want you to think through a few different things that I think John is trying to get us um, to consider and that Jesus wants both the church and Smyrna to hear, but also as a word for us today. One of the things at the heart of this letter is that is Jesus' insistence that God is a suffering God. And he points to himself when he says he is the first and the last. He is the one who is dead and now lives. This idea that our God is, in fact, a suffering God, which is not like any other gods in the world. God is not like the gods of other nations. He's not like the gods of other religions. But God is one, and he is a God who suffered. And he invites us into this suffering, and that in that suffering is where we will actually find Life, where we find purification of sins, where we'll be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so at the heart of the New Testament, you find this passage that describes Jesus' de uh, descent into suffering. And it began the moment he came into the world, giving up his place of privilege, letting go of the things he held on to, humbling himself to become a man. And not simply the form of a man, but living in absolute obedience to God. This is the mystery and the beauty of the incarnation. He says to the church in Smyrna, look, I know what you're going through. 
This is not an intellectual knowledge of like, I know exactly what situation you're going through. What he's, what he's saying here, what he's trying to communicate is I have experienced tremendous suffering all the way from, to, from being beaten, from being betrayed, from being homeless, from being you name it, and then ultimately going to death on a cross. I have experienced this suffering. I know what it's like. I can empathize. I can feel what you're experiencing. Whatever you're facing now, I am going to be with you every inch of the way because I experienced it too. We've heard countless times, I remember when um, things kind of were crazy during the height of the early pandemic season when we were quarantining and toilet paper was flying off the shelves, kind of like water bottles are right now. Um, I remember, it was funny, it wasn't long before, if you watched TV, every commercial uh, seemed to have the same message, right? Uh, these big corporate companies would come on and they'd say, we're all in this together and there'd be these little pretty piano music behind it, right? We will get through this. And there's sort of this collective um, encouragement that we would make it through to the other side of this thing. But when Jesus says this, it's different than say, Starbucks, right, saying we're all in this together, right? Jesus is saying, no, I know your pain, and I see you in your pain. I know it because I have experienced it. I have suffered on your behalf. Some of you, I've, ha I've talked to many of you about some of your stories, and you've shared seasons where you've suffered, whether that be mental health, um, grief, uh, of loss of a loved one, whether it's broken relationships. I think all of us endure suffering of many kinds. This is a part of what it means to be human. And so while this is, is, is specifically talking about martyrdom and talking about losing your life, I think all of us can relate to the idea that we do, in fact, at times in this life suffer. And one of the things I believe Jesus wants you to hear tonight is that God sees you in your suffering. Even if that suffering is hidden, whether it's an addiction or whether it's in uh, something that you don't feel like you've shared with other people, Jesus sees you in it, and he knows and understands it. But if you notice in this letter, and what kind of makes this letter so, so um, difficult at times, is he doesn't promise relief. He doesn't say, I'm going to take away the suffering in this life. He simply leans into it and enters into that suffering with his people. And so he has two messages for the church in the midst of suffering. The one is that we should not be fearful. And the second is to be faithful. I don't know how many times I've heard uh, well-meaning preachers or whatever say, uh, we're not people of fear, we're people of faith. And I, and I think they're right uh, to some degree. But I think Jesus actually knows um, that his people are fearful. I think he understands their situation. He knows that they're going to be afraid. And I think, if you think about the situation that many of them are in, it, it, for many of them, loved ones were being dragged off and thrown into prison. Um, people, your property was being taken away. The, the government was crossing the line in every way, shape, and form. And people were genuinely afraid for their life. I think that um, we can certainly relate to this, maybe not to that extreme, but there are times, we, we live in a lot of uncertain times. A lot of things have, are unknown. One, one of the hardest parts of sort of laboring through the, the pandemic season, I, I think, was just not knowing when it was going to end. Like, when were things going to go back to normal? We, that was kind of the phrase. When will things be back to normal? And the hard part about suffering 
is that oftentimes we don't know when it will end. And that's what makes Jesus' words here so hard, but also profound. He says, do not be fearful for what you're about to suffer. And I can't imagine, like I'm trying to get my mind into the people of this church. I can't imagine knowing that my life could be taken and that's the word um, that I'm receiving. Because I know in that moment you want the pain to stop. You want it to be over. And then you get this letter from Jesus and you think he's going to tell us, hey, there's a deadline to your suffering. It's all going to be good. And at the end of the day, that's not what he says. It says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. It's coming. You've already suffered. You've already experienced it, but there's more coming. It's so difficult, I think, to hear this kind of thing. Uh, there's a great movie, uh, one of my favorites, um, called Silence. It was directed by Martin Scorsese. And it's a, it's a story about two Jesuit priests who traveled to Japan to provide guidance for Christians who are being persecuted and tortured. And it's a really intense, long movie. Um, but it's one that, that I think has uh, some really profound uh, moments in it. And I actually have a clip um, that shows uh, this beautiful moment where throughout the whole film, and, and I won't try to spoil too much of it, but one of the priests is um, undergoing tremendous both mental, psychological, but also like physical torment. Okay? He's watching his friends being killed for their faith. He's experiencing torture himself. And the whole time he is crying out, faithful to God, pleading with God. In all these moments, after you hear him cry out to God and weeping, all you hear, and it's a very specific choice by the director, is the sound of crickets and the wind and sounds of nature. It's almost as if the, the man is speaking and crying out to God and all you hear is silence. And there's this profound moment at the end of the film when he's standing there with another Christian um, and he is praying and you hear him pray. You don't see his, his lips move because he's praying silently and the voice of God speaks audibly to him. So we're going to watch this clip. It's really profound and I think it will help illustrate this idea. I fought against your silence. I suffered beside you. I was never silent. God had been silent my whole life to this very day. Everything I do, everything I've done, speaks of him. It was in the silence that I heard your voice. I don't know if you caught that, but the voice, I think it's Liam Neeson's voice that comes in there as God, right? 
But the voice says, I was not silent. I suffered alongside you. And then Andrew Garfield's character goes on to say, but even even if God had been silent my whole life, to this very day, everything I do, everything I've done speaks of him. It's a profound scene because I think sometimes in suffering, it can feel as though God is silent, as though he doesn't see us, as though we feel alone or lost. But Jesus is saying to his people and he's saying to us, I see you in your suffering. I know what you're experiencing and I'm with you in it. On one hand, trying to understand what actually suffering is. This is an age-old question. One of the questions I often get uh, from students uh, doing many years of youth ministry is this question of why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow good people to experience horrible things? It's an age-old question. What is it about? What is the meaning of suffering? I think on one hand, it's about participating in the life and the experience of Jesus Christ. It's about identifying with him in pain, in the sorrow of life. But I think on the other hand, there's a, there's a bit about transformation. That in the midst of suffering, God is doing a work in us, is changing us and sanctifying us for his purpose. I, I think that's what I love so much about that quote is He's wrestling the whole film with this idea that God is silent and he's, he's, he's so angry. And then he comes to this realization that says, but even if you were silent, everything I've done speaks of you. It's as if he came to this realization. This, he's been purified through the struggle. So how do we get there? How are we conformed to Christ in the midst of suffering? I, I think it's hard for us to hear a little bit. Um, as American citizens, I thank God that I was born in the United States of America. I think it's a gift. I think it's grace that we're, we're accustomed to living as individuals in a, in a culture that uh, gives us unalienable rights, gives us freedom and liberty, and we can worship God without fear. I'm grateful for that. But when the gospel comes to us, I think we even learn that the gospel requires more than just the pursuit of happiness. And sometimes it doesn't even allow us to pursue our own happiness because the gospel is more than the American dream. It is more than getting everything that we think we want in this world. It's deeper. Jesus invites us to enter into this experience to suffer with him. In other words, I think this is an echo of what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer because suffering is coming. And the reality is for all of us, um, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know the future. We can't look into a crystal ball and know. But for all of us, I can make a safe bet that we will at some point experience suffering. Um, that's part of what it means to be human. And if we're listening to what the Spirit is saying to these churches, instead of running away in fear when those moments come, instead we lean into what Jesus calls us to do, to not fear and to remain faithful. We prepare to be martyrs for Christ. And this word martyr does not mean that we're necessarily all going to die for Jesus, although I think we can prepare for that sort of thing. But it means to prepare to be a witness to the Lord Jesus in a world that desperately needs that witness, a witness of the gospel for those who are lost, no matter the cost. That's what we need to be preparing for. Now, there's an interesting part in the text that I want to quickly address 
It's the part where he says 10 days. Is he saying that they will literally suffer for 10 days and it'll be over? I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I actually think it's an echo of an Old Testament story. In the book of Daniel, we learn about these young Hebrew men who are in exile. They're in a really tough spot. They're living in a world that is hostile to their faith and their way of life. And they ask themselves to be tested. They ask people around them, the governing officials, to test them for 10 days. And if you know the story, it has to deal with a certain kind of diet. I won't go into details. Otherwise, it's basically like you avoid meat and don't drink wine and only eat veggies. So, um, I mean, that's kind of form of suffering, I guess. Um, but that's what they do for 10 days. And after the 10 days, what, what's interesting is they say, test us, see what happens. And they're tested, and they come out on the other side of the test. And compared to all the other young men, they are stronger, and they are healthier, and they are leaner, and they are better than the men around them. The point is this, that the 10 days of suffering did come to an end, and on the other side, they were stronger than when they began. Something was forged in that one of my, my mentor, Hank Letterly, always said, suffering is built on the crucible of white, hot suffering. Our character is built on the crucible of white, hot suffering. It's where our character is made in the midst of our pain. But there's a limit. I think the limit is different for everyone. In the case of these Christians, it meant they were going to die. It meant their lives would literally end. And I think that's what the psalmist meant. And he says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ones. I think that's for those who fully see that to the end. And I think death comes to us in a lot of different ways. I think for them, there was a the threat of physical death. I think it wasn't just the death of a dream or the death of an idea or death of a ministry or whatever. I think it was the end of life. And in this church, in this letter, we see Jesus shepherding them and providing what I would call end-of-life care to the church at Smyrna. Flannery O'Connor is an author um, I read quite a bit in college, and there's a great quote that she has on suffering. She says, what people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket, when of course it is the cross. If we're going to follow Jesus into the world, it means that there is a cost to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, and live for one another and not ourselves alone. We must live with the view of being conformed into the image of Christ to endure suffering knowing that Jesus is with us in the midst of it, that he himself is a God who suffered. I'm going to close with a story. Uh, I've shared this before, so you've probably heard it, but it's about, um, it, uniquely, it's about the, someone from the church in Smyrna. About 50 years after the apocalypse of John and uh, John was circulated among the churches, and, and John had gone to be with the Lord at this point. Um, but Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, was arrested and dragged into the stadium in the city of Smyrna. This is a place, if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you can kind of envision it, right? There's this big arena, and in this arena, they would take slaves, they would take um, all kinds of, of, of people and prisoners, and they would fight beasts and be devoured, and it was a really terrible, terrible thing. And so Polycarp would not renounce his faith, so they dragged him um, to the middle of the arena, and they, they begged him, gave him one last chance to swear by the fortune of Caesar. They say, repent and say, away from the atheists, which is what they called the Christians then. It's, it's kind of backwards now, but um, to swear and I will set you free. And Polycarp answered in this way, 
He said, 80 and six years have I served him. Never, he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The governing official said, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you do not repent. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour. And after a little, it's extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Bring forth what thou will. Polycarp was murdered for his faith. He did not fear what he was about to suffer. He knew with absolute faith that Jesus was with him in those moments, that Jesus was with him in the fire. The final image of the movie, you have the priest being burned alive, and in the fire, you, you think this is just this really sad ending, but you see in his hand a cross, and that cross isn't burning. It's a really powerful image in the way in which the film ends. And it's a reminder that, yes, Jesus is indeed a God who suffers with us. It's like the Moravian Christians once said, Our Lamb has conquered. Let us follow him into the world with a cross unto the altar, even unto death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your example Life on earth is one who was completely obedient to the Father, even to death on a cross. As we take time in a bit to confess, to receive the elements, and to partake in the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that you begin to prepare our hearts right now, that as we do this, that your very presence would be in this room, that it would minister to us, that your body, your blood would minister to our hearts and our souls. And at these moments, Lord, we lift you high and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.